Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode seven of the Downrange Podcast. I'm Cody, your host. Today we're joined by Toby Horndon. Toby is an accomplished author and editor. He's wrote previous books, Dead Men Risen and Bandit Country, one of the most acclaimed books about the Irish Troubles. He's a former foreign correspondent. He's reported from a total of 33 countries while based in London, Belfast, Jerusalem, Baghdad, and Washington, D.C. for the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Times of London. Toby is a dual U.S. and British citizen and former Royal Navy officer who currently lives in Northern Virginia. Today, we talk about his new book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Enjoy. So, uh, well, it's hard to believe, 55 now. (laughs) Um, But I I grew up in England. You can tell from the accent I'm not from these parts, although I've been a naturalized American since 2009. Uh, But I grew up, my dad was in the Navy. I'm the fourth generation to serve. Uh, His his father was in the Army. Uh, My great-grandfather was in the Army as well. This is like going back into the 19th century. Um, I joined the Navy. out of sort of high school in man you know grew up, grew up in manchester northwest of england mostly um and then got kind of a sponsorship through college um studied modern history uh uh sponsorship from the navy and then sort of did six and a half years after college so i did a total of 10 years because i was commissioned um with you know in my, i did my sort of dartmouth like academy equivalent of the academy but it was just a a year before before college um so left the navy uh like age 28 and um had always had the urge to write you know and also my time in the navy was you know i was in from 85 to 94 um and you know i tried very hard to get involved in the gulf war they felt they could handle it without me you know um and so I, I, got, I kind of got to lots of nice places you know I sailed we went to the Caribbean we went to the Far East a couple of times Australia a couple of times all over the world and it was great and everything but it wasn't very it didn't it never felt very real to me you know Cold War was over what you know um obviously it was before 9-11 and then uh, and all that so I mean in a way I mean, I sort of had joined for adventure, but I almost left for adventure as well. So, you know, I thought like journalism, that's a way to kind of get to places. Um, and so, yeah, very, sort of very early on, I got sent by the Telegraph, you know, UK paper to Northern Ireland. And it was at a point where the IRA was, they had had a ceasefire. It looked like it was sort of politics. But then actually just before I got there, Um, They ended their ceasefire and it became sort of more, you know, war and terrorism as well as politics. And so that was like 96. And uh, so I did that for a few years, which was just fantastic. Wrote my first book there called Bandit Country, sort of about the IRA heartland. And um, I guess for my sins, because I handled politics pretty well, I got sent to Washington, which was great. But even at the time, I was thinking it's a bit, you know, I don't know. I've never really, I'm interested in it, but you know, I get a tingle up my spine sort of 
you know, going to Afghanistan or Iraq or Beirut or Jerusalem rather than, you know, walking into the White House, you know, right. or, or talking to people on Capitol Hill. And so, but anyway, so, so 99 I ended up in the, in the US and then, you know, two years after I got there, 9-11, so I was in DC on, on 9-11 and, you know, that eventually led me to Iraq and Afghanistan and lots of other places. Um, and then came back here uh, in, I was away for two, three years from 03 to 06, came back here in 06 and, and have been here ever since, um, you know, doing journalism and now trying to make a go of, of sort of books full time. There was something in you that said, hey, you want to be able to not just be a journalist, but put people's truth out there. And I think you touched on that a little bit. Why most people don't like being in D.C. because there's not a lot of truth that's there. It's the truth that people want to see all the surface level stuff. But I think what you're saying is that you're constantly looking for something deeper. And that's partially why you joined the military. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I really have pro I have problems with um People don't people saying things that they don't mean. Sort of, I guess, hypocrisy, lying. Like when I was a kid, I remember it was a big thing with my father. You know, the worst thing you can do is is lie. You know, and um, you know, for good and for bad. I mean, some of that wasn't great in some ways because you know you tell you tell a, like a fib to get out of a tight spot as a kid, and then your father's coming down on you for lying. It, you know, it could be kind of intense, but. Um, I don't know. I could never, ever have been like a press officer or in PR. I, I could never sort of, you know, I could, if you ask me to make a case intellectually for something, I'm sure I can, you know, put the points, but to sort of, you know, without being too pejorative to sort of be a paid liar, to sort of lie for a living and have, I would find that really, really difficult. And so I think journalism, uh, and, and, you know, and, and more actually books where you can actually go deep and like talk to people, put it together with um, documents and stuff and, and, and really get to, you know, you can often you can never get to, you can never get to the complete truth. Even if you have 10 eyewitnesses to something, uh, particularly if it's a sort of stressful situation, you can get 10 different versions and none of them will be lying necessarily but they just have different perspectives. So, you know, you have to know you're always striving for truth and perfection, but you're never going to reach it. And, and every, you know, everything you sort of produce, um, you know, isn't going to be perfect, even though you've, you've tried it to be, uh, tried to make it perfect. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something in me uh, to do with adventure and being in places and seeing things firsthand and experiencing them rather than kind of, you know, just sitting back and have other people tell me. You stated that you were in DC on 9-11. You could take me back to that day and kind of how your life changed on that day and kind of how events unfolded right before you and, and ultimately what that would later lead to in your life. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I think for so many people, I mean, I think anybody that was in the United States that day, um, it did change their life. Um, or if if it didn't, then maybe they don't have a pulse. I don't know. But it was just such, you know, obviously now 20 years ago, so anybody that's really sort of, you know, under 40 maybe 
will have a sort of pretty dim recollection of it or be completely oblivious. And I've seen some of the news coverage. I wondered whether the reporter even knew what 9-11 was or that that was the reason, you know, why we, why we first went there. Um, but so, you know, I've been, I've been in DC for two years covering American politics. Was, you know, I'd kind of, it was a huge shock for me to come from a Northern Ireland where I knew everything about a very small story to sort of coming to the, you know, the global capital of, of the world, I guess, a bit, you know, the most important city in the world, sort of politically anyway, um, and having to sort of suddenly be writing about China and Africa and nuclear treaties. And I mean, it was a shock to the system. It was just, it was humbling, you know, it's a very steep learning curve. Um, but, you know, I had my sort of, you know, I was reasonably well established by that point, two years in. Um, and I remember that morning, I, my intention was, to go and go to Capitol Hill and cover Laura Bush, the first lady, uh, testifying before, because she was like a librarian, testifying before Ted Kennedy's, you know, Senate Education Committee. That was my plan for the day. And it was sort of like, I actually, my sister had been married, got married uh, on the Saturday. 9-11 was on a, on the Tuesday. I'd flown back on the, wet, on the Monday and, you know, Thankfully, I did, because if you, you know, a lot of journalists were caught out that day because they were in weird places. They hadn't kind of come back up from their summer vacations and stuff. So, you know, it was the first day back. And I, this, you know, and I do remember thinking, you know, we've been through the 2000 election, which was, you know, hanging chads and Florida and all that kind of stuff. And then now we were into, you know, eight, nine months into the Bush administration. And there was a sort of sense of I remember sort of thinking, you know, it's after the summer. so what's going to be the big issue what's the sort of running story and it was kind of a little bit I, I don't know well we'll just we'll just wait and see and then obviously you know I walked into the into the office in downtown DC I think just as the first place plane was uh had hit and so there was you know small plane you know Cessna kind of thing oh that's a bit weird hmm uh and then you know, and I sort of sat down and was just kind of getting a handle on it. And then I saw the second, you know, the second plane flying, clearly an airliner. And then at that point, I was like, holy shit, you know, um, this is, you know, you have all these conflicting kind of, you know, thoughts and emotions. But part of it was, this is going to be one of the biggest work days of my life. And I can't screw it up. I have to get this right. And uh, so, you know, there's kind of that hyper-focus on that. Also, the, you know, the time difference is five hours ahead in the UK, which meant that, you know, we had to file the first versions of our stories by like lunchtime, like 12, midday, 1 p.m. It's given the way things were unfolding, you know, it was pretty, uh, it, you know, it was pretty hardcore having to, having to do that. But then it was, but also, you know, uh, what does it mean, you know, have any of my friends been killed? Um, we're at war. We, we're going to get hit again. You know, I live in DC. Flight 93 was flying around in the middle of this. And I do remember thinking, like, it could be going for the White House. You know, I'm like two, two or three blocks from the White House. And then, and then just thinking, I can't even think about that because I just need to, I can't control that. I just need to just, you know, do my job. And then they were, they were, they evacuated the building managers evacuated the building. So we kind of locked the door and we had these like inner offices and there's no way we, you know, there's no way we were leaving because we couldn't work, you know, because this was before, 
you know, now you could probably do a lot of it on your iPhone, but then you, you know, you needed your computer and stuff. So yeah. And then that even, so that kind of two things that really stick out, sticking in my mind from that evening. The first one is sort of about, I don't think I ate, I didn't leave the office till about 8 PM. I don't think I ate anything all day because it was just, you know, we filed the story and then just continuously sort of updating. There's two of us, there's me and another reporter who's like my deputy. And he'd been, he ran over to the Pentagon uh, and did some reporting from there. And I was kind of anchoring it, you know, from the office. Um, and so it was, it was sort of weird. Like all this, sort of the world had changed and I hadn't like, you know, left the building. And I went across the road to just buy a hamburger and um, in this like restaurant. And, um, and I saw up on the screen uh, a picture of Barbara Olson, who was the, uh, wife of Ted Olson, who was the Solicitor General, and she she was like a kind of fire breathing sort of conservative lawyer, sort of anti. She's written a a book about Hillary Clinton. She was kind of anti Clinton sort of person. Um, and I'd interviewed her a few weeks earlier, and I knew her a little bit kind of socially. And uh, she said something kind of off color about Bill Clinton's mother. He, she referred to her as a barfly, right? Which, you know, and so there's some item about criticizing her for that. And, you know, and it, I think it was possibly accurate, but not a nice thing to say about someone's mother. And I, I remember she was she was really kind about it. Like the, the usual thing with that would be to blame the journalist and say, oh, I was quoted out of context or that was off the record or whatever. She didn't do that at all. She owned it. And she said, you know, I said it, you know, I shouldn't have said it. I apologize. And, um, you know, and I thanked her for that. And I felt, I thought it was a night, it was a kind of a, a sort of a kindness to me and a, she accepted responsibility. So, you know, she wasn't a friend, but I, I, I knew her. And then she was, she, I mean, she was on the, on the American airlines plane that went into the Pentagon and she'd been on the, on the phone, um, to her husband kind of, telling him about the hijackers and asking for advice and stuff. And so it felt to me, I think the pilot, maybe some of the pilots names had already been released, but it was almost like the first, you know, person, the first victim to be named um, from the sort of general population was somebody I knew. And I was like, and it happened to be the only person killed that day that I, that I knew, but it was like kind of a shock. And it, it brought the reality of it home to me. And then the second thing was just, sort of going home a bit later and seeing like Humvees um, on the corner of streets in DC and, you know, guys in, in national guard uniforms. And there was just a sense like we're at war. Are we going to be hit again tomorrow or next week or next month? And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a big day and I wanted to get to Afghanistan sort of immediately. And, but I was sort of told, listen, you've been in DC for two years. You, you've got pretty good contacts, you know how to do the story, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pull you out now. And so I was a little bit frustrated. Um, and I remember actually when we got to Iraq, I remember like literally having my head in my hands when the St Saddam statue came down. I was like, I can't, I can't believe I've, I can't believe I've missed it. But obviously, you know, it was, there was a lot more to come. And so, you know, you know, if it wasn't for 9-11, then I, I wouldn't have ended up going to the Middle East. Um, I wouldn't have, obviously wouldn't have ended up writing this book about Mike Spann and 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 Team Alpha and the, the CIA in those early months. So 
you know, it 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 definitely took my, um, it, you know, it sort of dominated my life for twenty years, I guess. This isn't the first book that you've written on Afghanistan. The other book that you have, I mean, where did that come from, and and what was the thought process? So yeah, that's so that book, Dead Men Risen, that came about because so I first went to Afghanistan in 2006 so just before the British arrived and I went down to Helmand and I remember you know like lying in the back of a car for the drive from Kandahar to Helmand you know <laughs> and it didn't feel great I can tell you but we still did it but you know a couple of years later you would like a suicide mission to do that to do that uh, drive. nobody don't drive on highway one I have a friend <laughs> Who got out of uh, active duty military and the, the only job that he could get at the time was as a contractor and his job was driving based in Kandahar, but he would drive up and down Highway 1 down to uh, Hellman and then all the way up to the northern tip of Zabal province. Wow. Just doing like village stabilization, humanitarian aid missions and basically just dropping off random medical supplies. He did it with this a white white guy from Iowa, a linguist, and they had one AK-47 with him. He did it for almost 14 months. Wow. And to this day, I'm like, you had absolutely no business doing that. And that was in 2011. Wow. Wow. Well, that's like playing Russian roulette every day for 14 months. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, um, about the about the book. Yeah. So so you know, so you know, I was, you know, covering the sort of the arrival of the Brits. And I remember there was an SAS lieutenant colonel um, who, uh, you know, who I sort of bumped into, as you do. And he and he said, you know, we're going to stir up a hornet's nest, you know. And that was at the time that was controversial. You know, now it looks like, well, completely accurate, if not underplaying things. Right. Uh, but there was this sort of sense that it was sort of going to be fine. Um, but um, by, by the time we got to 2009, um, you know, the Brits were involved in very intense fighting or sort of being relieved or, um, you know, supplemented or, you know, taken over really by US Marines. And um, so a friend of mine called Rupert Thornelow, who I'd got to know in Northern Ireland, he, he was a uh, Welsh Guards officer and he was sort of doing an intelligence liaison role at the time. So, you know, he was kind of a source, but he, he was a good friend. Um, he was the commanding officer of the Welsh Guards, so battalion commander, lieutenant colonel, and he was killed in action on uh, July the 1st, 2009, killed by an IED. And, and that battalion had already lost a company commander and a platoon commander. And so Rupert was the first battalion commander to be killed since the Falklands War in 82. And to have those three levels of leadership in a battalion, that was the first time since Korea. So it's like a big deal. And... Um, you know, Britain's a smaller country, so you know, you know, uh, smaller numbers of casualties have a sort of greater impact. And so, I, I, I knew various people in that regiment in the, in the Welsh Guards, and so I sort of contacted them, and they said, "Yeah, you know, we, you know, we'll we can help you. You know, if you can get out here, I had to deal with the Ministry of Defence to get out there. Um, but I, you know, so I went out there in like September." Uh, October 2009 and that became Dead Men Risen. I thought I was going to go out there. I didn't know what I was going to find. Um, I mean, I just knew the bare sort of facts of the, of the, of the heavy casualties. Um, 
And so, you know, I was thinking of a story of heroism and sacrifice, and that is definitely a big part of it. But it also sort of came became a book about um, what happens if you under-resource a war and you don't have a well-thought-out plan. You know, so they didn't have the right vehicles, they didn't have the right counter-ID equipment, um, they didn't have enough people, uh, and they had this sort of six-month cycle, like a brigade would come in for six months, spend a month settling in, then do like sort of a big operation on, you know, in, in sort of month four or five, then spend a, a month handing over and then the cycle would would happen again. So it kind of became not like a critique, but a sort of, you know, a kind of an explanation of kind of what was going wrong there. Um, and that sort of led to some sort of blowback from the Ministry of Defence. And so that's, you know, that's that's how I sort of got into, uh, you know, really sort of deep into Afghanistan. Um, and then first casualty, you know, ended up, you know, that's about a different period 2001 just after 9-11 and about you know northern Afghanistan and so rather than Pashtuns Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras and so you know that was a kind of completely different sort of project. So that's what we're going to talk about and really focus on today and that's your new book First Casualty the untold story of the CIA's mission to avenge 9-11 and I think we'll start at the beginning of where did the story idea originate from and then where did you really pick it up and, and start moving out from so i mean again right back to 9 11 so you know being in the us um for the sort of 18 months two years after 9 11 you know you're covering everything i went all over the country it was that it was a you know it was a sort of a country at, at, at war and 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 you know obviously afghanistan started happening pretty quickly and then in 2003 Iraq. And so I vividly remember Mike's Mike's band being killed. And that, you know, the first casualty after 9-11 and the fact that he was a CIA officer being sort of identified publicly. And you know, I wrote a couple of news stories about it. And I remember um, Shannon Span, his widow, speaking very movingly. She's also a CIA officer at his funeral in Arlington, which was December the 10th, 2001. And then everything kind of moved on, you know, the, just the news cycles, anthrax, you know, we were getting ready for Iraq, but it sort of always sort of, you know, the story of, of, of Mike's band sort of always stuck with me. And then probably a couple of years later, sort of late 2003, early 2004, I was in Iraq and um, at the staying at the Hamra hotel, which was sort of the journalist hotel at the time. And, um, Somebody, another journalist said to me, did you ever see the footage of that CIA guy sort of running for his life in the fort outside Masri Sharif? And I hadn't seen it. So I looked at it on YouTube or wherever it was. And it was footage from German TV, ARD, who happened to be in the northern end of the fort on November the 25th, 2001, when this, there was this prison uprising. And the guy running for his life was David Tyson who'd been the CIA officer with Mike Spann, um, the former Marine Corps officer, you know, in, this, in the southern half of the compound, interrogating these, or sifting, questioning anyway, these 400 Al-Qaeda prisoners. Um, and so Mike Spann had just been killed uh, and David was in this sort of, you know, kill or be killed situation and had shot his way out to relative safety. But I remember like looking at him and looking at his, he was carrying like a pistol and an AK, 
Um, and I remember looking at him and thinking like, wow, what's just, that guy's just seen his comrade killed. He's just killed a load of people. He doesn't know whether he's going to live for the next five minutes, the next five hours or what. He's just in a different kind of realm, you know? I was really interested. And also just looking at him and reading the little bits about him. He wasn't like a, he wasn't like a, a SEAL or Delta Force or he, he wasn't like a hardcore, uh, you know, military operator. He was a, he was a case officer and he was, he was a linguist, which, you know, again, we'd been placed in this situation that very, very few people would ever sort of have to have to face. So I was really interested in him. And, um, you know, over the over the sort of subsequent years, I read everything I could about Kalajanki, the you know the name of the fort, um, and this six day battle there, and there was the American Taliban, so called. I mean, he was really Al Qaeda. John Walker Lind, who was one of these four hundred prisoners, the British SBS, you know, equivalent of the SEALs, were there as well. I played a sort of crucial role, and so it's just sort of fascinating. And it was also this all these different groups, Abdul Rashid Dostum, the sort of warlord from central casting. Um, you know, he was in command. Mullah Fazl, who's sort of, you know, again, another central casting character like Black Turbans, you know, Taliban guy, sort of evil, you know, mass, you know, carried out massacres of Hazaras in Northern Afghanistan, now back in the Taliban government, you know, after spending 12 years at Guantanamo Bay in the intervening years. Um, so, you know, I was really interested in all these things coming together at this one point. Um, but I tracked down, so 2013, I tracked down David Tyson, uh, just kind of Googling and I actually found um, an academic at Indiana University had thanked him um, for uh, in the acknowledgements in his book. And so I emailed the guy um, and he passed on my contacts to David Tyson and I remember I was covering uh, Chris Christie, you know, running for re-election in New Jersey in uh, 2013 because I have these off-year elections. I, you know, like this is another off-year election. So New Jersey and Virginia governorships, you know. And I remember like uh, not really enjoying it. Christie and his people were jerking me around and it's kind of like pretty annoying. And then the phone rang and it was David. It's like, hey, this is David Tyson. So... I was like, wow, great. And so we met in a Panera Bread and um, we chatted and he was really not, he was really cordial and friendly, but he couldn't say very much because he was still serving. And uh, I sort of, I kept in touch. I tried very hard to keep in touch with him and Christmas cards and just little emails and stuff. And sometimes he would drop off for a few years, you know? <laughs> and um, anyway, but eventually... At the beginning of 2020, he retired, and um, I'd already emailed him to say, "Listen, I am, you know, I thought about doing a book in 2013. It got shelved for various reasons, and I just, I'd returned to it at the end of 2019. So I'd emailed him and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm going to do a book this time." Didn't hear back from him for a couple of months, and then I just got an email. And he said, "Hey, I've just retired. You know, I'm, I'm ready to talk. Let's, let's meet up." And um, so that was. You know, that was sort of a big moment. I thought there is a God, you know, because, you know, because he was a very important person who I'd always hoped would speak to me, but I didn't know. Um, and then I just had a very sort of intense sort of 17 month period or so when, you know, 
I tracked down a couple others like Justin Sapp was the Green Beret on the team, still serving as a colonel. You know, he was sort of visible on LinkedIn. And J.R. Seeger was the chief. Another case officer, diary speaker, had, had sort of long retired and was writing thrillers. You know, so I can't. So, you know, I just went to them one by one, told them what I was doing, built up, you know, a bit of credibility, showed them what else I'd written. And so that they could see that, you know, I did things sort of properly. I didn't have an agenda and um, just sort of took it from there. But, you know, I never knew, I ended up speaking to all six surviving members of Team Alpha. And sometimes people say, oh, you know, he was granted access by the CIA. Is this somebody phoned me up and said, hey, Toby, would you like to come in? Right. But it was. Please come tell our story. I know. I mean, <laughs> they did help. So when I got when I, you know, when I spoken to, I think, three of Team Alpha, as well as Kofa Black, Hank Crumpton, who were the guys who were sort of running the war from CIA headquarters, and lots of Green Beret. You know, I sort of, I had, a, I knew I had enough to write a good book. Um, at that point, I contacted the agency, uh, the you know, Public Affairs, who I didn't have any sort of connection with, and to sort of my surprise, really, they they were helpful. You know, they they didn't open the vaults, they didn't give me. They all their cables, or in fact, any of their cables, but they did facilitate interviews and they did say to people, we're okay for you to talk about this, you know? And um, so that was, you know, that was great. And that's, um, that's kind of how I ended up. Well, what was it like in the beginning, digging in to not just the agency, but getting down into special activity center and then figuring out what an actual ground branch team is like and how it's kind of made up and then, building it out from there, kind of putting the pieces together to figure out what what were these guys actually doing? Right. So it was not straightforward. So I I guess the concept of the book I had originally was, was folk. I mean, still, there is still a kind of a central focus on the six days, I guess, of the battle from November the 25th to, I guess, December the 1st, uh, when the 86 surviving Al-Qaeda come out of the cellar of the pink house, you know, so they started off with more than 400. Uh, and Mike Spann's body had been recovered on, I think, day three. Um, and you'd had friendly fire, you big J diamonds, you had all sorts of stuff. So I was good. So my thought initially was it was going to be that maybe the book would be, you know, about those six days. But the more I found out about, the more I spoke to the CIA people and found out about them, the more it became. Well, Kalajanki is a big part of it, but it became the story of Team Alpha really from 9-11 onwards. So it starts with 9-11 itself and, you know, talking about what you were doing on that day. Well, David Tyson was on a flight from Tashkent to London. He was based in Tashkent. So he's on a flight from Uzbekistan to London for a meeting about uh, Stinger missiles recovery from the 80s that the CIA provided to the Mujahideen and then kind of got <laughs> spread around and the CIA was trying to get them back and, and buying them back. Um, so he was he was in the air on 9-11 and didn't know about any of it until hours after it finished and he landed in Heathrow. And then Justin Sapp, um, the Green Beret, was uh, underwater because he was on the Special Forces uh, diver course in, in Key West. And then Mike Spann was in CIA headquarters and Shannon Spann, his wife, also a CIA officer, was she's on... Uh, parental leave so she was at a giant in manassas park in virginia so it sort of starts from there obviously i think sort of go back into the you know into the 90s 
and the 80s and the sort of history of Afghanistan and 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 and, and where we uh, you know how we sort of got there but it became yeah much more about team alpha and at the beginning you know I knew obviously Mike Spanner be killed I knew about the existence of David somebody in 2013 had mentioned Justin Sapp and and, and I was like oh there's a Green Beret on the team I have no idea but it took me it took me quite a few months to find out, to establish, well, I established reasonably early on that there were eight on the team. And then there was also Team Bravo, which was sort of very closely connected. They came in later, but Scott Spellmeyer, who was on Team Alpha, became the chief of Team Bravo. And three, so three Bravo teams, team members came in, I think around November the 2nd. And they were working with Atta Mohamed Noor, who was the Tajik sort of rival slash ally to Dustin. But that was confusing because actually there was the um the mother of one of my of my son's one of my son's friends at school at like then at elementary school I guess was the ex-wife of a CIA guy that had been in Masri Sharif when Mike Spam was killed. And so I was confused because he because I worked out he wasn't on Team Alpha, so I thought maybe she got it wrong or somebody had spinning been spinning a tail. In the end, it turned out he'd been on Team Bravo, and so I then became the aware of these of Team Bravo. So, but and then you know, even the people that do talk, you know, they're reluctant to talk about other people, and and so some of these names like Scott. And Andy uh, would and Alex would sort of get mentioned in passing a little bit. And when I try and push, you know, you wouldn't hear. I wouldn't hear very much more. And, oh, you know, he was a good guy. I think he was ex-mil, you know. And so um, Andy was still serving, actually, and, and is still serving. Um, so I did interview him. Uh, in he was the last person I interviewed from the, from the team. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was just a piecing it together you know different things that the people you know people would mention um obviously you know you do the usual thing that sometimes uh you know you sort of imply and people assume that you know more than you do so they they suddenly start you know saying stuff um and and, and then in the end you know obviously you know the, so there were first three i'd spoken to then i spoke to scott who had become very senior uh, Kabul station chief and was did a big job. I think senior CIA person on the NSC, but had retired. Um, and I also spoke to Alex Hernandez, who was the deputy who'd spent a full career in special forces, retired as a sergeant major, then become um, a CIA paramilitary and got quite, had a complete other career. And he'd also retired. Um, he was reputedly, you know. The epitome of the quiet professional and in and in many ways he is but i was always told he was never going to speak but then you know um once scott had spoken you know word came back yeah from alex yeah i'll speak and so you know i went to see him in uh he lives near warrington and um you we spoke for five hours you know <laughs> and uh I almost couldn't stop him speaking, you know, and it's sort of just pouring out because, you know, he, I guess he just made the decision. Agencies given the okay. It's 20 years ago. All these other people on the team have spoken. I'm, you know, and uh, so, 
yeah and then you know david had kept a diary which he didn't uh let me know about until pretty late on you know um somebody gave me some some documents like a special operations commander historians um had you know done a whole bunch of interviews and written a very sort of comprehensive sort of after action report on the whole thing and so yeah you know it's just all these jigsaw pieces um and uh you know at the end it, it sort of amounted to uh, a pretty you know complete picture but you know to use the jigsaw analogy I didn't know the, what the picture was like at the beginning, you know, so you're kind of assembling it and working out what the picture is at the same time, which is, you know, it's very exciting to do. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's you know, you really get into, that's, I really get into that aspect of it, like solving these problems and working out the geography as well. I mean, there was no map, you know, sort of one map to show where they'd been. So, you know, Justin Sapp was very helpful on, on, on maps. David was very good on place names. And so again, you're sort of putting it together. But then, you know, I needed a map for the book, extremely important, but it also really, really helped me to sort of understand. And then once I've put in the places and the date and started putting in the dates, you know, I can then see, oh, okay. So, you know, once they coordinated the, you know, the, the airstrikes with the horse charges, they really moved quickly. But up until then, they were kind of stuck. And then, Alex will be, yeah, we were stuck, you know, so there's all that as well. Uh, it's crazy when you look back at it and realize that, you know, the book does touch on the, the micro level of it. But when you look at the first really month, two months going on in Afghanistan post 9-11 and you, you look at the macro of it with Team Alpha and Team Bravo, insert a couple ODAs in the north, a couple in the south, an airborne operation in Kandahar, for objective rhino to secure yeah. the airfield all trying to come up with a coordinated attack plan to work everybody working back towards Kabul. yeah now in hindsight 20 years later it looks like a great well laid out plan at the time that was not the case because right. dod is not talking to really anybody except for the white house Definitely not talking to agency or any foreign allies who could have placement and access. And it was just chaos in the moment. Yeah. And I love how, uh, you know, the book kind of goes on to explain that and literally key decisions that are made on the ground that 20 years later, again, would have to come from the highest levels in government were literally made just from a team chief there because he's that's what he's entrusted to do. Yeah. No, I found I found that fascinating. And yeah, so just because something happened the way it happened doesn't mean it was inevitable. It was always going to happen that way or it's planned to happen that, that way. And so often, you know, in journalism and in life, people just, you know, I don't know, you know, if somebody won an election, well, they were always going to win. You know, the other person, they, they were a genius. The other person was an idiot. Well, no, I mean, you know, all these extraneous sort of factors come in and if a few thousand votes have gone the other way you know we'll be telling a, a, a different story and I mean you're absolutely right I mean the Pentagon didn't have a plan for Afghanistan you know and I, you know we all sort of think they have plans for invading Canada and and you know everything else but they didn't have a plan and sort of Tommy Franks came up with sort of your CENTCOM commander at the time four-star general 
came up with a sort of ponderous, you know, Soviet invasion type of plan. And Rumsfeld was the defense secretary, was pissed, you know. And but the CIA did have a plan, albeit pretty bare bones, because they'd been sending in uh, small teams, codenamed Jawbreaker or NAUT, Northern Alliance Liaison Team, from Counterterrorism Center at CIA, also from NE Division, who had their own rivalries um, from sort of 99 onwards. Plus, there, were after, there was the Alex Station, the, the Bin Laden unit within the Counterterrorism Center, and people like J.R. Seeger, the chief, who'd worked with the Mujahideen in the 80s. So like a small cadre of CIA people that had sort of kept the Afghan flame burning, if you like, when... US government as a whole and the US people have just forgotten it and seen it as some kind of weird Cold War proxy conflict. But they did have a plan of, of sending teams in. It was kind of what they'd wanted to do, but never got the green light to do because they wanted to get bin Laden because, you know, bin Laden was, you know, there'd been the embassy bombings in East Africa in 98, there'd been the USS Cole, there'd been the Millennium Plot. Clearly, Al Qaeda, bin Laden, based in Afghanistan, were, you know, trying to attack American targets overseas and, and also the homeland. So they so they did have a plan and it was sort of, you know, Kofa Black as the counterterrorism center chief who'd been an Africa division hand and, you know, um, he lives pretty, you know, near to me and I, you know, interviewed him for the book and he's a larger than life character, you know, this incredible sort of turn of phrase, you know, like, he, and it fitted with Bush and in a way he, he sort of played Bush, and I don't mean he sort of tricked him or he manipulated him, but, you know, he's, he's a case officer, so he, he assesses personalities and motivations and he knows what's going to work. And Sokofa's sort of, you know, kind of bloodthirsty, evocative language, you know, worked with Bush, who wanted him, you know, dead or alive and all and all that stuff. So Sokofa Black was, you know, when we finish, they're going to have flies walking across their eyeballs. You know, which was, was one of his sort of phrases or you know i want bin laden's you know head on a pike or you know in a box with dry ice and and, and it, it you know it fitted the moment it definitely worked for bush uh and so they had a plan of sorts uh, um but it was very as you kind of suggested uh, decision making was very very delegated i mean in a way it's sort of a dream you know for a cia officer or an ODA commander at the time, um, you know, sort of back to the OSS, you know, in, in, in World War II, where, you know, you don't have to get permission from headquarters as to, you know, uh, you know, what kind of food you're going to buy or, you know, how much you're going to pay a warlord or whatever. You just sort of do it. And it wasn't even a case of permission first and forgiveness afterwards. It was like, it was understood that these decisions will be made at that level, which was sort of incredibly sort of empowering. And, you know, I think also was part of the, you know, the, you know, provisional, but still success of these early months that they did topple uh, the Taliban. But you could also see that, uh, you know, Big Army Inc. was sort of moving in. So for instance, um, you know, Mark Nuke, Captain Mark Nooch was the ODA 595 um, commander and, uh, you know, who's played by Chris Hemsworth in the 12 Strong movie and the, they do horse whiskey now. And, you know, Mark is the guy, he's the horse soldier. But he was, 
he was the link man with Dostum militarily. Like JR was on the intelligence side, Al Qaeda and the tribal networks and stuff. But tactically, um, it was uh, it was Mark Nooch and Dostum, and Dostum was like the G the G chief in the Robin Sage exercise that that special forces do on the Q course. You know the guerrilla chief. When you get up close to him, you you know you stop him committing war crimes. You help him. You know, but you try and the two of you are pointed in the right direction, same direction, and you don't let him out of your sight. And so Mark really was the sort of textbook application of that and was brilliant. And to this day, you know, Dostum, who I interviewed last year, you know, loves Mark Nooch. But, you know, after, I mean, really about three weeks, um, Rumsfeld's getting upset that captains... Uh, seem to be the senior people on the ground and he's he's pushing for you know don't we need some sort of brigadier generals in there and stuff colonel john mulholland who's the ex-delta guy who's the fifth group commander and there and then the, the task force dagger commander in k2 in uzbekistan who's over you know who's a senior military commander who's really by his own description kind of on you know he's he's only a colonel he's should really have been a two-star job. So he's kind of underpowered in terms of rank. So he's trying to fend off Rumsfeld, who's phoning him up and chewing his ear because Rumsfeld's pissed off that the CIA's got in the lead. You know, there's all this kind of stuff going on. And so uh, Mulholland decides to send in ODCs, battalion, you know, battalion elements. And so uh, all of a sudden uh, there's a... Battalion commander Max Bowers, Lieutenant Colonel. So he, he's in. He's joins Team Alpha and ODA five nine five, and then he's the guy who's supposed to be liaising with with Dostum. So, so they've already pushed up to Lieutenant Colonel, and then a couple of weeks later, um, Mazari Sharif's fallen, and um, Sock Center sent it. So it's Admiral Callan, so a two star, and now he's the guy dealing with Dostum and the other. So. In the course of a few weeks, we've gone up from a captain to a two-star. And really, you know, I don't think it was the fault of either of the other two, but the most effective person in terms of the relationship with Dostum was, was Mark Nooch. And so there's sort of, you know, you know, that's like a microcosm, but, the, you know, what's happening, that's part of the overall picture, which is, you know, once the Taliban regime has fallen, we've, we're getting, you know, Big army coming in, conventional troops, you know, bases, supply chain chains, um, and you know, also a lot of people. What you know, a lot of senior people are wanting to get into the get in on the action and get their boots on the ground because they think it might not last that long, and and so it's sort of you, could, you know, the book is it's about the granular detail and the and the sacrifice and the heroism and and the mistakes and that sort of you know true life story of of people in extreme situations facing sort of incredible things on that level but i really tried very hard to link it to the overall picture of of 9-11 and what was happening in in washington and to put it as part of the broader context but i also think it sort of it shows how the seeds of some of the mistakes and some of the 
difficulties we were going to face over the next 20 years was sort of apparent, like unreliable allies, you know, murky situations with prisoners, friendly fire uh, issues, um, uh, you know, the sort of tensions between Pentagon, CIA, institutionally, certainly not on the ground, but, but you know, higher up and the friction sort of between the conventional army and special forces and the very sort of different approach approaches, um, homegrown jihadis, you know, so John Walker Lind, um, all those sort of things were present. And in a way, I think they got brushed aside a little bit because uh, we quote one, you know, at the end of 2001 and, and then it's like, well, okay, we'll shoot for the moon. Then we'll, we'll go for nation building and, you know, a democracy in Afghanistan and, oh, Nation uh, regime change isn't that difficult, so let's go do Iraq as well. And so this, all this was sort of happening in that same period as well, which you know just made it to me so fascinating. Incredible, not just story, but historical recount of of truly what the facts are. And at the end of it, no matter what the activities or events that took place, it truly is a story about some characters that some would say would be larger than life, but others would just say are what their job and who they actually were. And that's people who were country first, mission first, and no matter what, I'm here to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, these were like fascinating people, you know. I mean, CIA's, I mean, all eight of Team Alpha had military backgrounds. So Mike Spam was a former Marine Corps officer, Anglico, you know, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison. Um, Justin Sack was a serving Green Beret. Alex Hernandez had a full career in um, in Special Forces. Andy, who's still serving now, was a, um, a Green Beret reservist. Scott Spellmeyer had been uh, wounded uh, in the Battle of Mogadishu in 93 as a Ranger. Uh, Mark Rausenberger, who's the medic who d- died on... CIA duty in the Philippines in 2016. Um, so he was a physician's assistant. He'd been in Somalia after Black Hawk Down, uh, again, army. Um, and David Tyson had, um, he'd had two stints in the army. So he'd been an artilleryman enlisted right out of high school. And then he'd been, uh, I think he got an ROTC commission as um, an intelligence officer. But actually of the eight, he had the least military experience um but all of them had it but they were they were a little bit they were older so uh alex was 49 um jr was uh, a few years younger david was 40 um the youngest was justin sat was 29 but the other guys were early 30s mike was 32 but you know older than your you know average soldier and they'd so they'd live life and you know really sort of different characters. I mean, David, you know, is a linguist, um, speaks at least, I think, a dozen languages, been an academic. Um, he'd lived in, in Uzbekistan for years uh, as a student. At one point, he possessed no shoes, you know, he was so close to going native. Um, and, you know, his sort of bearing wasn't military, and he was kind of quirky and a little bit contrary. Um, JR, the chief, had been in He'd been in the 82nd Airborne as uh, as a captain, but you know he's he'd studied anthropology, archaeology, um, and so these were really sort of really interesting people and how they sort of worked together 
and how they gelled was uh, was sort of fascinating to me. Um, you know, as was the sort of level of improvisation and adapting they had to do, which goes back to your point about there was not a carefully laid out plan here. I mean, it was, you know, Justin talks about his orders were to go to Afghanistan and conduct combat operations. That's it. <laughs> so, E-man team. We're rolling in. Yeah, that's right. Back. That's a big feat to be able to accomplish there. So you've caught up with everybody, all of the main characters. The other thing that gets blown past here and you touched on a little bit is John Walker Lind and really yeah. homegrown terrorism. But he was brought back to the United States, federally prosecuted, and then served almost all of his 20 years, but has since been released in 2019. Yeah. So he's, I believe, uh, he's in Northern Virginia. Um, and so he was... Uh, he was convicted in Alexandria and certainly his on his release, his lawyer said he was living in Virginia. He wrote an article, an article for the intercepts website recently, which was sort of comically propagandist really accusing us of involvement in massacres and, and stuff. Um, and there was a photo of him, you know, in full, you know, prayer cap and long beard and full Islamic garb um he was revealed to be an isis supporter um uh, several years ago and so all the indications are so he was portrayed at the time which is understandable from the defense team's point of view as kind of a a lost kid who was sort of cu curious and went on this sort of spiritual journey and was interested in islam and you know sort of a gap year you know misadventure type of thing but, said every every American that I ended up detaining in northern Syria as well. What do you what right. are you doing here, buddy? I'm I'm here trying to do NGO work. Right. Why, okay. Why did you swear bayat to ISIS and why were you exactly. just shooting at us? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and they had some, you know, they were sort of helped by some of the facts, which were, you know, he had arrived, you know, he'd signed up for the Taliban before 9-11. Um, but you know, he'd done a number of interviews. He did a CNN interview, uh, with Robert Pelton Young, where he basically said he was, uh, a member of, um, Ansar, the helpers, which is, you know, Al Qaeda helpers being Al Qaeda helping the Taliban. Um, we, you know, it emerged, he'd met bin Laden. He trained at Al Farouk camp, you know, so he, you know, he had some pretty weak sort of links in that defense case but there was also some mistreatment of him quote mistreatment relatively minor in the scheme of things you know but there was a picture of him at Camp Rhino strapped to a um a stretcher sort of naked with a blindfold in a shipping container it was a pretty austere place in 2001 Camp Rhino I mean there'd been virtually nothing there and also I mean pictures are in the book actually of uh of the ODA that had uh looked after Lind at the Turkish school in Masri Sharif they did you know it wasn't a great idea I think even they would admit at the time they did they did a team photo at the end when when um Lind uh was being transferred uh down to Rhino and he had a blindfold on and somebody put a bit of duct tape with shit head written on it and used the sort of the battalion or team 
digital camera and and then of course once that got plugged into a laptop you've lost control over it and they, they realized pretty quickly that was stupid and could come back to bite them um but you know that that pic those pictures ended up with the defense team and so i think the um you know the u.s government in the end they they never want to put cia cia officers or green berets on the witness stand um for you know so david tyson was um you know all ready to testify but it's a bit like espionage cases they nearly always do a deal because they just don't want to go through a trial yep. it's too messy and so uh it was 20 it was it was 20 years um and he served most of it um he sued brought a legal case against the u.s government for because he wasn't getting enough prayer time in Terre Haute, you know at one point so you know he used the he used the american system that he sort of despised but you know he's he's he sort of stuck to his guns you know sort of i gonna guess metaphorically but um you know i think his parents there was some correspondence with his father where his father was trying to get him to renounce violence as part of trying to get a pardon um from the obama administration and and lind is like having having he said i'm not going to do it you know having no part of it so he's he sort of remained consistent throughout which is that he supports you know jihad uh, and violent jihad you know he supported isis and he was saying this at the time when americans and other westerners were being beheaded by isis um so he was released under a pretty stringent set of conditions he had to go through a he, he had to keep seeing a sort of psychologist i mean i think there may be some mental health issues there um he couldn't uh communicate in a foreign language his internet use was monitored um so i mean there was a clear sense that you know he was somebody to watch and i don't know i mean uh i think we probably haven't heard the last of him i think he's gonna sort of you know he's gonna he's gonna emerge somehow doing something i mean i'm not suggesting he's going to go and you know blow anything up or or anything but i i just you know i think he's that that, that article he wrote for the intercept was an indication that you know he was probably going to have some kind of public persona at some stage well let's hope it's nothing crazy that's for sure looking back so 20 years 20th anniversary you know what are the takeaways for you what have we learned, not only from yourself and I guess ways that you live your everyday life, but kind of as a country, as a world, you know, what do we take away from all this? Well, some positive things. Um, so one of the interesting things in the last few weeks has been seeing and being part of, you know, sort of on the fringes of Team Alpha member, former Team Alpha members and Shannon Span, Mike's widow, like working very intensively to get Afghan allies out of the country. Um, and so the translator I worked with last year is now at Fort Dix, you know, and will soon be in my basement, <laughs> um, which is wonderful. And, uh, you know, some of these Team Alpha people were, were part of that and, and others as well, you know, all these people, former military uh, or just sort of good Americans, good people sort of stepping forward. And so in a way, there's a lot of, from the Team Alpha people, there's a lot of like anger, frustration, mourning, sadness, all these sort of emotions about what's happened over the last 20 years and particularly how, sort of how it ended up and 
you know, this sense of, of allies being abandoned. But but what they're focused on, you know, a little a little bit different, but some similarities, they're focused on the mission just as they were after 9-11, which is, you know, getting things done, cutting through bullshit, um, finding solutions and not, you know, sitting back and sort of whining and, 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 and stuff. And so that's been sort of very impressive and kind of moving to me to, to see them doing that. Um, and it, it also sort of gives me hope because it's, you know, there's such polarization and division in the country, whereas the rescuing Afghans has been something that I think the vast majority of Americans have been able to sort, not everybody, but the vast majority have been able to unite behind. And that's great to see because, you know, one of the things at the beginning after 9-11, obviously what happened was terrible. You know, war is terrible, but, you know, the country was united. Like one member of Congress voted against authorizing military force. Bush's popularity was 90% in October. And now look at where we are now in terms of sort of division in the country. So, you know, I think that's, it, to me, it shows what Americans can do when they put their mind to it. And also, um how people are fundamentally good and can unite behind, you know, unite despite all the crap that gets slung around, they can actually do something good. I mean, I also think that, um, you know, on the sort of flip side, what we've learned is, I mean, I remember because, you know, I was here on 9-11 and I, you know, and I remember, um, you know, thinking that, you know, the Iraq war would go pretty well, you know, and, and Saddam needed to be removed and, you know, it would all sort of work out and democracy would flourish. You know, I sort of, you know, like the majority of people, although most people don't admit it now, um, I, you know, I was part of that sort of majority uh, view of Iraq. I mean, but I think the 20 years have taught me and I think many people is is sort of humility, you know, the enemy has a vote. Um, uh, these countries, we may want to try to refashion countries in our own image. We may think that American values are sort of universal values, but these places are different. And so like Afghanistan, you know, it's a tribal society, you know, we've, we've been through, I mean, even at this, Again, in these early weeks, you know, some of the Tajik fighters, you know, had young boys that were essentially, you know, dancing boys, essentially sex slaves. There was issues with not the prisoners of Kalajangi, but some of the other prisoners who were being sort of kept in containers basically to be raped. You know, young Pakistanis boys that had come on jihad and would, you know. And I'm sure it's a shock for a lot of listeners here, but from somebody who's experienced it is just a normal day in Afghanistan. Right. It's shocking. Exactly. Multiple wives. And, you know, so we tried to establish, you know, centralized democracy with sort of Kabul as the center, you know, in this tribal society, um, you know, we, got very sort of upset, you know, legitimately in many ways about corruption. But, you know, we were pumping in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into a sort of medieval society. Well, what did we expect was going to happen? Plus, you know, 
tribes and clans and ethnic groups, you know, they've traditionally operated by tax, you know, taxing people for using roads and stuff. And so, you know, we fueled by trying to make, if you were just focus on Afghanistan, we tried to make it like us, we, um, you know, we failed to understand just how different uh, the place was. And, you know, I mean, you know, you think we should have learned from Vietnam, but, you know, we, we promise, you know, we have a short attention span, you know, this, this sort of traditional Taliban or Pashtun phrase, you know, you have the clocks, but we have the time. Um, but, you know, Ryan Crocker, who's State Department guy, who's an ambassador to Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria in his time, you know, he talked about the sort of the lack of strategic patience in America. So we want instant results. And we sort of, we go from, you know, a few hundred Americans on the ground to 100,000 to 5,000 to 2,500. We're sort of lurching all over the place, you know, rather than having some kind of like steady state long-term plan. Not just long-term plan, but I mean, 20-year war that really we fought six months at a time. Every mm. six months, there's a change in overall command structure at every level that there is in country and with that creates mission mission creep uh change in objectives and overall you know redefining what is mission success from the first time that i went to afghanistan until you know i I was just in afghanistan last year on my final deployment there was times when literally what is our overall goal is to kill as many people as we can right right right. deployment all of a sudden we're back into village stabilization and training our afghan partners next deployment oh we're back to just killing a million people okay well it was taliban and then we all of a sudden we see more isis even though al-qaeda still been here they never Mm. left the mountains they were always here they might have renamed themselves isis or isis k or whatever else we want to call them they're still there and to this day with u.s forces with our ally forces there are not they are still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't had an attack on the homeland in the last 20 years. So we did seriously degrade um, Al-Qaeda. I think that's not nothing. Um, got Bin Laden in the end in 2011. Uh, could have been very different if you know it's it's sort of very much kind of on the periphery of the book really because um first casualties principally about um team alpha in northern afghanistan but clearly in december uh 2001 uh you know we didn't get enough troop we we relied on afghan tribes and even the pakistanis which is a whole other area of discussion to, to stop bin laden getting out it didn't work he got out he never left he never left pakistan so that 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 could have changed things so i mean there's a lot of what ifs i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned um but i hope it doesn't lead us to trying to turn our backs on the world or or certainly on afghanistan because we you know we do that at our peril um and again this lurching from what you know all or nothing i think is is unfortunate but you know 
when the Russians left in 89, the US government position was like, okay, we're done. And then, you know, uh, Taliban kind of, you know, so an Islamist regime was established. Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were given sanctuary there. And really from 96, 97, we were on a track of they're going to hit America. So, you know, I don't know whether we can with nobody there, but, you know, we need to uh, try and keep a handle on that aside from the, the sort of what we owe our Afghan allies. So I, I hope that this doesn't lead us, you know, as the American people to say, well, that failed. That was a mess. We're just going to ignore it now. Oh, no. Well, I guess, I mean, I hate to ask this question because you just finished this incredible book, but what's next? <laughs> For me? Yeah. Um, so I have a few ideas. I mean, I want to um, concentrate on uh, sort of full-time book writing, maybe doing some ghosting, maybe doing some sort of editing. I mean, I just, I love this sort of long form sort of deep dive. Um, the previous books uh, had 10 years between them, which is not a great hit rate and certainly won't pay the bills. So I would like to sort of um, get straight on with another book soon. I have a few ideas. You know, one sort of involves Vietnam, Special Forces and the CIA. Um, but we'll but we'll see. But uh, yeah, you're reminding me that I, I need to, uh, you know, <laughs> it's great to do podcasts. I mean, I really do love them. And you have to publicize a book, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's time to, uh, to uh, start getting on with the, with the next thing as well. But, you know, that'll be, that'll be exciting. Anyway, Toby, I appreciate you taking the time, I guess, where can people uh, go to, to get some more information about you, the book and, and everything else you have going on? So I'm trying to be pretty easy to get hold of. <laughs> um and be sort of fully engaged, even though a lot of me sort of hates uh, aspects of social media. It, you know, it is useful to be able to sort of connect with people uh, as long as you learn that you have to ignore some things as well. But, you know, so my website is Toby Harnden, T-O-B-Y-H-A-R-N-D-E-N.com. And Twitter, I'm Toby Harnden, um, you know, at Toby Harnden. I think I'm Toby Harnden one on Instagram. And if you know, if you Google my name, you should you sh you should be able to find me and, and lots of stuff about about the book. I mean, on Instagram, actually, it's been fun. I put out a lot of pic obviously, there's only a certain number of pictures you can have in a book, uh, but I have you know thousands of pictures, and so the best ones with the little snippets from the from the book, I, I sort of put out. So that's a that's a space where you can kind of learn more and 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 see more. That's exactly what I was just going to say. An incredible follow. If you want to get more information, specifically the pictures are very, very good. Yeah. On Great follow. And I appreciate you putting those out. Check them out at the website, follow them on social and buy the book, people. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, please do. Toby, I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Cody, and uh, enjoy talking to you.